Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, a podcast where we explore the weekly Come Follow Me discussions and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here with my friend and the show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What's up? Hey! And and before we dive too much into this episode, I'll tell you what's going on. I uh, just want a little shout out to you guys. We would love to hear from you. would love to hear what you're up to, uh, how you found the show, or any questions or just any kind of interaction at all. You can reach out to us, uh, just that easy, hi, H-I, hi, at weeklydeepdive.com. So send us your mail. In this episode, we're going to cover Doctrine and Covenants section 37 through 40. And kind of the, if you're not one, you're not mine, as the Lord talks to his people and, and trying to unify them. I know, I know, Nate, you've kind of been looking forward to this. I love this one. Like, I've always loved the, if you're not one, you're not mine. There's a lot that goes into that, so I'm ready. Well, sweet. We, we've got you stoked up. So let's not waste too much time. We should get right into it. Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 37, verse 1. The Lord tells Joseph Smith, it is not expedient that you should translate at this time. Not yet. Put a pause on it. And when we're talking about translating here, we're not talking about translating the old, uh, excuse me, the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon has already been translated. This is Joseph Smith working on a translation of the Bible. And to say translation... Is, is maybe a little bit of a misnomer. It's not that he's going into the original Hebrew or the original Greek and translating the scriptures. He's, he's more reading through the Bible and relying on the Spirit to help him. And, and Joseph Smith, it's not to say that he didn't have a familiarity with languages. Uh, he had a, a deep love of languages and wanted to learn as much languages as he could. In fact, in 1835, he, he undertakes a, a study to try to put a, a grammar and an alphabet together for the Egyptian language. 1836 is when he signs up for Hebrew and, and hires a, a Hebrew instructor to come teach at the School of the Prophets. 1842 through 1843, he studies German and Hebrew, and it also appears that he studied Latin somewhere in the mix. So, I mean, if we were to take the languages that Joseph Smith studied, we, we, you know, Hebrew, Greek... German, and Latin in, in just a few short years. So very studious. And sometimes we get this idea or concept, you know, that he's this this farm boy, this uneducated farm boy, and certainly he started out that way. But the thing about Joseph Smith was he was very curious. He had a lot of questions, and he didn't mind asking and looking and trying to find. He was very intelligent, and he was tutored by some of the smartest people that, that ever lived, both in his time and not in his time, with, with angelic visitations and the way that he received instruction. So to say that he was uneducated his whole life, I, I think, doesn't quite fit the bill. Um, part, of, part of his love for learning it reflects in all of the revelations and, and the teachings where he would talk about knowledge is power, and we save ourselves as fast as we gain knowledge. And that's how God did it. Because he knows everything, he was able to subject everything under his feet. So this, I don't know, Joseph Smith's always been kind of a hero role model for me with his love of learning, his, his love of knowledge, his love of even seeking languages. He, 
I, I, I don't know. I, I, I've, di- I've dived into a few languages myself trying to follow a little bit in his footsteps. But let's get back to this translation. This is 1831, so this is still four years before he even undertakes any kind of linguistic study. So going back, this is not a translation. He's not relying on education. He's not relying on any of the teachings that he's going to be receiving later. In this case, he's wholly relying on the Spirit of God to try to guide his inspired um, revision, if you will, of the Bible. Maybe revision's a better word than translation here. And he, he has to put it on pause for the gathering, but to give you a little bit more context about this revision, he finishes the New Testament early in 1833, and then a few months later he finishes the Old Testament. However, he never finishes a final edit of the, the Bible, the inspired translation of the Bible. And so it never gets published, not in his time or before he died. Does we, somebody have it? Yeah. Yeah. And the, let's see, it would be the Reformed or the the LDS church split, right? Yep. The other church kept the manuscript and published it. So, And, and I believe they've allowed the church to print that. I've seen in the last couple of years, I've seen that Bible, at, I believe at Desert Book or maybe even Siegel. Wow. But they've they've kept on to it. But because because he never did a final edit, it never got published in his time. But later on, the Reformed Church took that. We have we have snippets of it. What we have is a very small portion in the JST in the Bible after the Bible Dictionary. But what they have is is more of its entirety. And maybe some people don't realize this, but when you go to the Pearl of Great Price and you see the Book of Moses, those those chapters there, what, six, seven chapters of the Book of Moses right there, it's not from a translation. It's not from the papyrus. It's very different from the Book of Abraham. It is part of this, this translation, this inspired translation that Joseph Smith is doing. So that would be in the in there along with a lot more edits than what we have. So they have a more complete version, but because it was never under the final edit, it never got published under the church. Hmm. It never, never came to be really official in, in the LDS church, at least the modern LDS church today. So anyways, he, he, he puts that on hold in, in order to gather the saints. And I know gathering is a very common theme. We've talked about it in a lot of these podcasts, this idea of gather the people, gather the people. But this is a little bit different in that this is the first time that the Lord is physically gathering them to one place as far as relocating. And we focus a lot on the gathering of the saints as far as crossing the plains and how hard, you know, the the hardships that they endured, having to walk in the handcarts, in the wagon trains, and, and all of that sticks out very bright in our mind. But maybe what we don't realize so often is even in these gatherings were fairly significant and required a lot of faith. These are very new members. The church has been around for less than a year. They've read a few pages of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon has been, you know, recently published and and yet with all of their newfound faith is you take all of these very young converts to the church and they're established in these areas and you ask them to sell their property and give up life as they know it to move and relocate to a new area and start all over new society new jobs new new everything and having to sell property they didn't always get the best value out of their property doing it i mean it, it you take a hit 
And this idea of physically gathering, this isn't the first, it's not going to be the last. They have to gather to the Ohio, they gather to Nauvoo, they gather to Independence, and then ultimately you've got this gathering where you pull all the saints across the plains into the Rocky Mountains. So it's something the Lord's getting them ready for, and he's going to do over and over, and maybe a lot of that preparation or training or experience helps them as in the end they have to bring everybody over to the, to the West. And he does make special mention of the Colesville, the Colesville Saints. He says that their their faith and prayers have been very sincere. Just a little salute to the Colesville Saints. This this is the branch where the Knight family comes from. Very strong members. And at this time, Hiram Smith is the one that's leading the branch. And they did they did demonstrate an enormous amount of faith and a lot of hey, it was needed initially to keep that church strong and keep that church going through through the problems that they were going to go through. All right, Doctrine and Covenants 38, verse 1. And I just want to read this verse because this intro is an introduction that God is making about himself, and he does it so powerfully. He says, Thus saith the Lord your God, even Jesus Christ, the great I am, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the same which looked upon the wide expanse of eternity and all the seraphic hosts of heaven before the world was made. And you know, when you think about the way we introduce people today, like for a lecture or a, a title, and, and you, you've got your whole alphabet soup of, 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 of labels, you know, the PhD or the MS or the, whatever the case may be, here he is, and, and what kind of introduction you can give this person. But, I mean, how can you compete with this? The same which looked upon the wide expanse of eternity and all the seraphic hosts of heaven before the world was made. I mean, that's that's a powerful introduction. I mean, people can introduce me as the um, greatest Mario Kart player in the western region of the United States, as a, as quantifiably. A, Yuck Norris? Is it Yuck yep. Norris? So, I mean, that's a pretty powerful introduction, too. I mean, if we're just, you know, comparing apples to apples. <laughs> but, but how, I mean... Yeah, versus, I mean, or maybe that's not that great of an introduction. And versus and Jesus the wide expanse of eternity, clearly looks upon the wide expanse of eternity, and and he says, "Okay, it, it, this reminds me when he says all the seraphic hosts of heaven before the world was made." Just kind of like, hey, by the way, you, you you can say you've been here for a while, or you can claim whatever it was, but I was here yeah, before the, the world was made, that's right? And and it reminds me. In the New Testament, when he's talking to the when he's talking to the people, and and they're talking about, he says, "You can claim Abraham as yours, but before Abraham was, I, I am. am." That's right. <laughs> and it just I don't know. The, no, the it's pers- pretty epic. <laughs> it is, and and that perspective, um, I don't know. It, it's 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 very limited. Our perspective. I mean, we we see things from such a short frame, and he he keeps reminding us, hey. By the way, I've, I've, I've seen things from before the beginning. And then I wanted to hone in a little bit on the word, the, the seraphic hosts. And, and that comes from Hebrew, the seraphim. And, and seraph means to, to burn on fire. And the im, seraphim, or the seraphic, means the burning ones. Hmm. So he's talking about the burning ones. And it's also literally the word they use for fiery serpents. But And I think it has to do with like when you get bit by a snake that's venomous, it burns. Yeah. And so the, the burning snakes. Hmm. But when I think about this with the seraphic hosts, I, I think of, of 
spirits that haven't received bodies yet. I almost look at it as if if we're the seraphim, and and maybe we're burning with light in this idea that our light, our spirits that that are glowing, if you will, have not been clothed upon with mortality yet. These 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 burning spirits that are waiting for life to come here. And and as we get clothed upon the spirits when we get here, and, and then that's why I find it so interesting because he sends venomous snakes in the Old Testament in the Book of Ether. We both see it, and, and you almost wonder because the snake was symbolic of Satan in the beginning, right? If maybe these these fiery serpents, these burning ones, the seraphim, the snakes, are are almost these fallen spirits that were never clothed upon. Mm, interesting, right? yeah. Because they say Adam and Eve were naked in the garden, but then they say, but the snake was even more naked. And, it, and well, I guess that takes us, it says, literally in the English, it says that the snake was more subtle. But it says Adam and Eve were naked, but the snake was more subtle. And you're like, wait, that doesn't quite make sense. If the snake was naked, but Adam, or the, if Adam and Eve were naked, but the snake was more subtle, more subtle doesn't really fit with, with naked there. The same word for subtle here can be translated as naked. So some translators look at it in context, and if they're saying Adam and Eve were naked and that they weren't wearing clothes, but the snake was even more naked and that he wasn't wearing mortality. Yeah, Yeah. he didn't have a body. So I think there's almost a kind of a play on word here when he's talking about the seraphim, these spirits that that before the world was, these burning ones, and yet he's using this imagery of snakes that because they wouldn't walk, they're forced to crawl upon their bellies. Because they wouldn't stand and and, and do things things as as God had had lined out or planned and they rebelled, now these burning ones don't get clothed upon mortality. And it, I don't know, it just Very cool. seems like a little play on words that way. I love that stuff. All right. And in verse two, he continues with his introduction. He says, the same which knoweth all things, for all things are present before my eyes. And, and that statement blows me away. How can all things be present before someone's eyes? And and, and is eyes a case of metonymy here where he's just saying, you know, we use eyes to represent how we understand or perceive things. So he perceives and understands all things or literally is everything playing out before him and he just sees everything in a moment. I mean, it is interesting because again, like if you look at, if you look at how we, um, understand like our time versus the time wherever God is, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That um, the further away that you get from something, the the um, more you can see, I guess, right? And so I guess the idea is that I this looks like it could be very literally, you know, all things play out before me too. If, if, time, if time moves, it's such a different pace in one place versus another you know i mean why wouldn't it kind of just look like it's just all playing out from a distance you know yeah and and in all things is it is it past present future and in all things in that case all things is in everything everywhere he talks about all his creation worlds without end have i created and yet all things are before his eyes mm. and and when he calls joseph by name or or when he speaks to us and he's talking to these people in Doctrine and Covenants, I know the thoughts of your heart. I know what's being done in secret chambers. I know what's going on. He's, he's. I mean, I guess he's framing the content, because in this section, he's going to talk about things that are happening and people that are conspiring in darkness that think no one is watching. And yet somehow he, he, he says, look, 
let me preface this. All things are present before my eyes. They can't hide it. I know what's going on. Hmm. And and how that miracle happens, I don't know, but it's it's a pretty incredible statement. I mean, clearly he wanted to separate the same which knoweth all things for all things are present before my eyes. Like it's redundant if he's if he's not clearly trying to separate those two things. Because if it's if it's just I can I know what's going on. He could have ended it with the the same that knoweth all things. It's a good point. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, I knoweth all things because yes, everything is in front of my yeah. eyes. And he and, and yeah, he takes it that one step further. Well, and then he in thirty eight four he says he's taken Zion into his bosom, and also in in Zion he's referring to the city of Enoch. He's taken that city, he's brought it up into his bosom. But then he goes on and says, and even as many as have believed in my name has he taken into his bosom, hmm. and and the bosom is a place of rest. It's it's a powerful image, right? I mean, it's comforting. He's holding. It's it's this this endearment that that he loves, and but also he's providing comfort maybe to somebody who needs comfort, and and so as I'm looking for instances where it talks about God's bosom or or this bosom in the rest, I find the story of Abraham in the New Testament. Not Abraham per se, but when Lazarus, the parable that Christ gives, when Lazarus dies, and remember Lazarus is a beggar in the streets, and nobody will give him the time of day. Nobody's giving him crumbs to eat. No one's giving him money or water or anything that he needs. He kind of dies alone and and in agony and suffer, like by himself, destitute. And in the spirit world, he's taken into Abraham's bosom, and Abraham is holding him close to him, and and feeding him. We're giving him water, taking care of him, and comforting him, holding him dear into his bosom. And then there's a, a gulf. And the other people that were wealthy or that were doing well that that ignored Lazarus are sitting on this other end of the gulf and they're parched throats because it's dry and, and they're thirsty. And now all of a sudden the roles switched where they become the beggars and, and they call out to Abraham and say, hey, you know, could Lazarus maybe dip his finger in the water and bring it over here and help quench our thirst? And, and this guy that was the beggar has now become rich or wealthy in a sense, or the the guy, he's no longer begging. He's the one that's taken into the bosom and he's comforted. And this story, so many times Christ is telling us in, in, in the, the Beatitudes, it's blessed are the humble, blessed are the poor, blessed are the destitute, blessed are the ones that are kind of broken up or destroyed because those are the ones that he pulls close to his bosom and he provides comfort to. And, and what's interesting to me in the story is the significance of the names, because Lazarus comes from the Hebrew Eliezer, which means El is God, Elohim, El, and Azer is has helped. God has helped. Hmm. So here you have a man in need for help that nobody helps, and when no one helps, then who does? God steps in and provides comfort, brings him into his bosom. And, and Abraham, Av is Hebrew for father, and Raham is of a multitude. Mm. And when he had his name changed, right, you will be a father of a multitude. And more are the children of the married wife than the destitute. Like the, this idea that Abraham couldn't have kids for a very long time, but now all of a sudden he's going to inherit nations. And this point Christ points out in the New Testament and says, you, you claim Abraham is your father, but I could pick up these stones and raise up children to Abraham. Mm. Abraham's going to be inheriting the nation. So as I look at this story, Abraham is taking on the role of God 
And we all become his children through Christ's atonement, this idea that we can be born again. And he is now the father of multitude. He is inheriting all these children. And for as many as believe in his name and and feel rejected in some sense or need comfort in some sense, and maybe only in the sense that they want so much to be with God and they're praying and that is their wish to to, to have his presence, to have his spirit, and, and to have him bring them in and grant them that wish and give them what they were poor in, in, in that they wanted that that spirit. Does that make sense? Or yes. am I just kind of wondering? No, I think so. I mean, I, I like, I mean, it is deep, um, but I do like the, I mean, I love the deeper meanings behind the names and stuff like that. And it's, it's I love, personally, at least always learning about the symbolisms and the, and of of the names um, that are you know given and changed you know throughout the Old Testament especially but the New Testament as well but yeah that's really interesting Lazarus being the one that God helped is is interesting yeah this idea that no one else would and so God does and I, this might this might not this might not be like a correlation but I know you've kind of talked about it in the past where. Um, um, God and Jesus, or I mean, Jesus has um, taken on like feminine roles as well, like mm-hmm. um, the mother hen and things like that. And you've even brought up some different, you've brought up some different things in the Old Testament where it's it's both masculine and feminine roles that he plays. But it, and, and this might not have anything to do with it, but it is interesting the idea of taking like a child, you know, towards you know, or in into your bosom. And the idea of, you know, the connection between even like mother and child that that the child needs, you know, even after his after the child has been after the baby has been given life, still relies on the mother for food. You know what I mean? And to continue to continue living, it's it's not only it's not only, you know, has 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 Jesus given us life, but but we need to rely on him still to be fed, you know? Yes, and when he says, will a woman forget her sucking child? Yeah. As we're talking about taking it into the bosom, right? And he says, maybe. Maybe she will, but I never will. Mm-hmm. Like, even even a bad mom or something, I mean, maybe maybe you can have an instance where, where she, she doesn't. But as much as that's hard to believe, it's even harder to believe that he will forget us. And he he has taken on that role through the atonement, this idea that we can be born again through him, right? This this perception. And as I'm thinking about what it means to be poor or broken in spirit, I, I don't know that it's necessarily a, a beggar in the sense like Lazarus was on the street literally begging. But sometimes being poor just means that you desire something you don't have. And last week when you were talking about um, Elder Holland coming and visiting you guys, and again, that presence of a God that was with you, boy, that had such an impact on me all week as I, as I would find myself praying and thinking, what can I do to be worthy of a God with me? What can I do to feel that spirit? Or what can I change? Or how can I improve? Or how can I, I don't know, be worthy of such a great companionship as we're talking about God being with you and and this idea, maybe, maybe that's what being poor is in a sense, is realizing that we're lacking that spirit, we're lacking that comfort, that that peace, that we want more of it. And and when we realize we want more of it and we're begging for it, we become beggars of a different sense. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I love that. Okay, let's go to verse 5. It talks about the residue of the wicked have I kept in chains of darkness until the judgment. And the key word for me in this one is kept. Because it's not like he's saying, I will put the chains of darkness all over them because of their decisions. As I think of it, it's it's like we're all in darkness. None of us know what really happened, where we came from, or none of us really have this good appreciation or sense for for why we're here or what we're doing until we start coming closer to God and and then those darkness is removed from light, his light as it's shining down on us. So it's not like he's trying to punish them and bury them in darkness. It's almost more of a natural consequence. If you seek the Lord, you shall find him. He will bless you with light. And as you get more and more light, then you start to see things clear or you start to have a better appreciation and and it liberates you, you know, this, this sense of liberation. And here, the residue of the wicked, it's not that he is punishing them, but he has kept in chains of darkness until judgment um, because they choose not the light. They're not seeking the light. And so they can't come out of the darkness. I mean, so the darkness is, in theory is just a natural, I mean, when we leave the presence of God and gain a mortal body, I think that's what you're saying, right? Yeah. Is that that's just, that's a natural consequence is that we don't know everything. It, that the darkness that we have is just, it's, it's there to provide us opportunities to have faith. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think maybe we should read this in context of verse 8. If we, um, if we go down just a couple verses, it says, The veil of darkness shall be rent, and you shall see me. Um, so the chains of darkness that were there, it's, it's like the brother of Jared, right? He had so much faith that he could no longer be kept within the veil, mm. and the veil gets rent. So that darkness, I think we, we're all subject to some, some amount of darkness because we just don't know. But as we come close to the Lord, as we draw near to Him, He draws near to us, and that light starts to penetrate to the point where we can penetrate that veil. And and as we're talking about veils being rent, what better example is there than when Christ is crucified and the veil of the temple is rent? It seems like kind of a strange fact, like, oh, so... Why, why, why does that have to do with anything? All of a sudden, a curtain in the temple gets ripped in half when he dies. But the significance is nobody could go into the Holy of Holies, but, but the high priest once a day on the Day of Atonement. But now all of a sudden, so the Holy of Holies is where God sits on the mercy seat, and, it's, and, and what separates him from the rest of Israel that no one can go in is this veil. And the fact that the veil rends with him finishing the atonement is that now because of the atonement, we can pass through the veil and enter into the presence of God. Something that couldn't have happened before because no unclean thing can enter into the presence of God. So as we're talking about these, this idea of being in darkness, but gradually getting to a lighter and lighter, eventually to the point where we can pass through a rent veil, it just seems very significant to me. And it seems like, it seems like we have those type of experiences here, or at least something preparing us for those type of experiences. Yeah, and obviously not to get into too many details, but a lot of that is fairly significant, you know, when when you go and do endowments at the temple. At the temple. Yes, and, and maybe when we get to go back to the temple again, you know, it, this idea of being able to to see more and more light. And, and I like to couple that with verse 7 here. It says, I am in your midst, but you cannot see me. And, and 
going back from last week when we're talking about, he, he says that he would go with them on their mission. And here he's saying, I am among you. Mm. Whether you can see me or not, I am there. And, and, and oftentimes you cannot see me. And so if we're looking for an experience to go through the darkness and pierce a veil and enter into the presence that perhaps he might be there, even if we don't see him, I mean, maybe that's something to think about as we go back to the temples and, and this desire, this this being poor in spirit, knowing that there's something there that we want more than anything to be in his presence and and thinking of him as that loving God that wants to take us into his bosom that one day maybe that veil can no longer contain us, that darkness is no longer there. We've we've received enough light that we can pierce that veil and see him in his presence. Mm. Just powerful scriptures. I love it. Okay. And uh, verse 11, let's take a look at this. It says, The powers of darkness prevail upon the earth among the children of men. And, and I think we see it. We see it uh, not just in Joseph Smith's day, but in our day. But for me, an, an excellent example is when they take the 116 pages and they're intentionally trying to change it to, to prove that he is wrong. And they're not, they think they're doing a world a favor, but they're being influenced by, by this darkness. But I think a lot of times there are people today that get caught up in causes or something that they believe is absolutely right. But the way they go about doing it, if you look for the fruits or, or for how it's being done, this idea that we get carried away in hate or in anger or in, in, in tearing something apart or destroying it, and maybe we should take a step back and just look and wonder, is, is this the power of darkness that's prevailing upon us here on the earth? Is, I, I think Satan is just excellent at distraction. Here we have the Lord trying to unify a people, trying to pull us all together, trying to gather the this, uh, sense this of harvesting, gather, gather, gather. And yet, sometimes these causes can be very divisive, and, and fill us with with rage or hate or or a lack of tolerance or a lack of understanding or a lack of even wanting to understand. But to your to your earlier point though too though like sometimes sometimes the causes like aren't necessarily evil or bad causes. You know what I mean? Like right. like that's it, it is interesting because it's like what you said. I think is is a really profound thing. Even when we kind of are trying to do some sort of self. Um, you know, self-inventory when we sometimes get caught up in things is that, yeah, these dudes that stole the, the, the early 116 pages, they, they were, to them, they looked at their cause as like, we're trying to, you know, expose this fraudster and, and we're trying to whatever. So if that means that we have to steal just a little bit and lie just a little bit, it's okay because it's for the greater good, right? Mm-hmm. And it is interesting because then you, you if you apply that to, to various things that sometimes, you know, pop up throughout history, you know, like a cause might be right, but it's like if you feel like if you feel like that that justifies you in stealing a little bit or, um, you know what I mean, or lying a little bit or potentially, you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, potentially infringing upon somebody else's rights or safety or whatever it is, you know what I mean? I, I'm not talking about anything specifically. I'm talking very generally that it's like 
that's when I think that we have to make sure that we haven't on our own lost our way a little bit, right? Is that it's like if if we're justifying things that we know aren't right, but for the greater, you know what I mean? But but we think, well, it's okay because it's for the greater good. It's then it's just like, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's ever. I don't know if it's ever okay to do something that you know is wrong with the idea that it's like, but it's okay because it's for the greater good, you know? This uh, is sometimes you hear this hate right now is justified. This violence, this hate is is necessary in order for people to love. And you're like, wait a second. Am I sure I'm understanding that right? If we have to hate and destroy and be violent in order to get people to love— I, I don't think that's the way that Christ wanted us to go about doing it. And I also just don't think that, that works. I mean, if I'm being totally honest with you, I'm just, you know what I mean? Right. Like you can't hate, you can't hate people into love, <laughs> you know, like as, 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 like as hard as that is to, to accept, you know what I mean? And the thing is, is what's interesting though, is that I do truly believe though, that like you can love people out of hate. You know what I mean? You can't hate you can't hate people into love, but you can absolutely love people out of hate, right? Yes. You can pull hate from people with love, and and <laughs> that's that sometimes takes the much 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 bigger person to have the courage to do that in a situation. But I'm I I guess I'm just saying it's like I I can I look I look at the history of the you know the world as we know it, and and I don't know any examples where where people were able to beat somebody into being a better person, you know, or hate somebody into being a better person and making better decisions. And I can give you a whole world of examples of where patience and love and understanding and listening was able to draw the hatred from people that, that previously had that in them. And and I think of, uh, I want to say it's Ogmandino, the quote, my, my dad loves it. He's got it on a blanket somewhere. I think he says, uh, Muscle can split a shield and destroy a life, but only the unseen power of love can unlock the hearts of men. Right? This this idea that I mean, it's. I think we all know. I think we all understand. I think we've all seen it. But sometimes we get so caught up chasing that that we lose sight of it. Sure. And it's not to say that causes are bad, right? I mean, you. That's what I'm saying. It's like the the thing is, is like the thing is a, a lot of a lot of the things that people are I feel like are fighting for now are the most correct things. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, it's just like, yeah, like a lot of the causes, especially now, it's just like equality and, and you know what I mean? And, and like certain, um, you know, powers not having um, control over people and groups and, and you know what I mean? And like, I'm just saying, it's just like, yeah, like these are things that we should all be striving for. And I can just say that it's like in a world that we live in now it's like building bridges and bringing people together as one is is the way that we're going to be able to change things and not by dividing you know not by hate not by dividing not by doing those things but but by listening and loving and and trying to understand each other yeah and doctrine and covenants tells us it it also says it's not meet that I, the Lord, command you in all things, and that, that all men should be anxiously engaged in a good work. So we should be finding things to do. We should be working. We should be, be doing things. But I think maybe Peter provides us with one of the better examples of, of, of how to do this when he steps out of that boat and walking on that water. 
And and as his focus is on the Christ, he's able to do the impossible. He's able to stand on top of the waters. But when his focus changes, as the wind kicks up and the waves get nasty, and he looks at all of the wrong things in, in the situation around him and focuses on those rather than focusing on Christ, if we put Christ at the center... And it maybe that helps center us a little bit more as we're looking for causes to support or as we're looking for ways that we can help and and do it in in a, in a loving way if we've got Christ at the center of it because that's that's what pulls his focus away from the storm and that's what lifts him back up out of the water after he starts to sink and and as we start to sink into a cause because we're being consumed with hate or fear or or just negativity with the whole situation of the world and where we're headed when we're in the perhaps the greatest time of all history when the gospel's been restored and light is continuing to shine brighter and brighter. There's a lot of great things to be happy and positive, and there's a lot of good things for us to be able to to thrust in our sickles and enjoy, and and maybe recentering around Christ can help pull us out of a depressing, gloom feeling when we get distracted and and sucked into maybe something that that might not be as wholesome. Let's look at Doctrine and Covenants uh, 38, verse 12, because as they're talking about the powers of darkness that prevail on the earth, and, and, and you know just as we have the Spirit trying to influence and help us to build, we also have evil spirit trying to pull apart, as, you know, just as we, we, as we were just talking. But all of this is done in the presence of all the hosts of heaven. And, and this is a phrase... That, that I caught this time reading that I really hadn't ever noticed or hadn't focused on before. It says, which causes silence to reign. And, and let me ask you the question, where? Where is silence reigning? Is it, is it on earth or is it in heaven? Because I, I don't think there's this moment of silence here on earth where everyone pauses and, and wonders about the evil in the world. But it says, all of it's done in the presence of all the hosts of heaven, which causes silence to reign. And if silence is reigning in the heavens, where have we heard that before? And, and this gets interesting to me because in the book of Revelation, all of a sudden we're reading all sorts of things that, that just sound like, like we shouldn't be reading already. This idea that the Lord just barely told his missionaries to go out. And what did he say over and over again here in Doctrine and Covenants? That the voice of the missionaries is as a sounding trump. And, and you're like, wait a second, in the book of Revelation, it talks about this, this idea of a sounding trump. And then this idea of the righteous being gathered together. And then as, as we keep going, it says, angels are waiting. So where's the silence again? It's in heaven, because angels are waiting in the heaven, the command to reap down the earth, to gather the tares, that they may be burned. So not only is the wheat being gathered, but then you have this idea that the tares are going to be gathered as well. And, and this, this silence in heaven is followed so it says there's going to be an opening of the seventh seal. There's, you have the sounding of the trump. The seventh seal is opened, which is opening the last thousand years or the seventh thousand years. Then after the opening of the seventh seal, there will be silence in heaven for the space of a half an hour. And here the Lord's saying, the angels see the darkness prevailing upon the face of the earth, and that causes silence to reign for this period. After, after this opening of this new dispensation, it's just, I don't know. It's interesting. And what happens after this? Well, 
They gather to Kirtland, they gather to Nauvoo, they gather to Independence, they gather wherever. The Lord says persecution is going to begin at my house. The saints are persecuted relentlessly until they're chased out of the United States. And then this 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 darkness that prevails, the persecution now switches to the United States undergoing the Civil War, and then the, the theater is spread out. I mean, last night we watched Les Mis, and... In the play, they're, they're talking about the, the revolution, the June Revolution. This isn't the French Revolution. This is a, another uprising. You, you've got their revolution happened 17, what, 96, shortly after the American Revolution. But then you have more uprisings, more rebellions. And then you have another one, 1848, and, and all sorts of bloodshed, violence. And, and all of this, um, going back to, to, to Les Mis and the play, the, the riot sparks with the death of Lamarck, the, the people's man, right? What did Lamarck die of? Cholera, because there's this huge outbreak. There's these, these diseases that are going the world over. There's these disasters. There's this destruction that's going the whole world over and replacing this monarchy, this tyranny, to, to a people's voice, this democracy, this constitution, to where, as they mentioned in conference last week, there are only three countries in the world today that do not have written constitutions, the, the constitution being America's greatest export. So I look at these things and I just marvel. Wait a second. We have a new dispensation. We have silence in heaven. We have a gathering. We have destruction that spreads across the whole world. I, I, I don't know what I can say as to, to what it means, but I find it amazing. It's just, just something to think about. All right, let's, um, oh, <laughs> I did think this was fascinating. This is 1831 that this revelation is happening, and they're talking about this, this reaping, right, this harvesting. <laughs> I find it fascinating that in 1831, Cyrus McCormick invents the mechanical reaper that transforms American agriculture in, in, in the same year. So this literally reaping is happening in, in the crops and the harvest the world over in a way that has never happened before. At the same time, the Lord is sending missionaries all over the earth for the first time in thousands of years with the restored gospel. It's, I don't know. It's a cool little Easter egg. <laughs> it's incredible. I don't know. It's amazing. I like it. Okay, Dr. Covenant's uh, still in 38. Let's go to 13. The Lord says, And now I show unto you a mystery, a thing which is had in secret chambers. So going back to all things being present in the eyes of the Lord to bring to pass even your destruction in process of time. And you're like, whoa, wait. So whatever's had in secret chambers is going to bring to pass their destruction in process of time. So is the church going to be destroyed? Who's going to be destroyed? What is this destruction? What is the secret? And, and then the Lord kind of goes on a rant for a while, and then he gets back to it in verse 28. He says, and again, I say unto you, that the enemy in the secret chambers seeketh your lives. And it's fascinating to me 1831, this is 13 years before Joseph Smith was martyred, and already the Lord says that people are laying down the foundations, plotting to take his life, and plotting to try to destroy the church. Uh, as we know, that the, the church survives, Joseph Smith does not. And so when it looks at your destruction and process of time, I almost wonder if this is a prophecy of Joseph Smith's death, the idea that he, he physically will be destroyed because of the plotting and what's going on that at some point in time. Who knows? But the, but the Lord does say, 
You hear of wars in far countries and say there will soon be great wars in far countries, but ye know not the hearts of men in your own lands. Not only talking about what the persecution is going to be heaped upon the saints, not only referring to the martyrdom of Joseph Smith, but also this is 30 years before the Civil War breaks out, and you don't realize this is what's going to be happening here. So very, I mean, the Lord says it, all things are present before my eyes. And this is where it gets a little bit interesting. He says, and for your salvation, I give you a commandment. Let every man esteem his brother as himself and practice virtue and holiness before me. And again, I say unto you, let every man esteem his brother as himself. For that man among you, and he gives this parable, for what man among you having 12 sons and is no respecter of them and they serve him obediently. And he saith unto the one, be thou clothed in robes and sit thou here. And to the other, be thou clothed in rags and sit thou there. And looketh upon his sons and says, I am just. Behold, this I have given unto you as a parable, and it is even as I am. I say unto you, be one. And if you are not one, you are not mine. So prefacing that, be you one. This is the one commandment. And for your salvation, I give you a commandment. And then he lays this out. I don't know, Nate, what are... What are your thoughts on it? I've always kind of, I've always kind of just wondered what, like, <clears throat> all the various aspects of what he means when he's he's telling us that we need to be one. Who do we need to be one with each other, with God, all of the above? You know what I mean. First of all, and then if that's mm-hmm. the case, and then if that's the case, then you have to start going. Okay, well, what does that mean to be one? Well, I mean, God. I mean, Jesus has talked about how he, Heavenly Father, and the Holy Ghost are one. And, you know, we know that they're three separate um, persons. So what does that mean, right? And then and then I think that that kind of at least starts to help maybe answer that question a little bit with when he commands us to be one, maybe what he's referring to, maybe what maybe maybe specifically kind of what he's talking about. And so then that's just when you kind of have to start asking the questions, well, what does that mean when 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 Jesus says that he, the Father and the Holy Ghost are one, what does that mean? Oh, that's know? a that's a really great point. I mean, if he's saying I mean how did how did Zion achieve it, right? Because they were one, they were pure in heart. And God starts at the very beginning talking about how he took the city of Zion into his bosom how do they do it? It's not that they were trying to copy each other, but it well, also it's not such- that they were all just the same, the same zombie people wandering around, just like, like all homogenized and weird. You know what I mean? Like that's because that's the thing is, is that I think that I think that that's important to recognize that we as members of the church and as members of our community and and all kinds of things, it's like we can be one without with. But, but 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 being being very different, right? Yes. And 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 maybe and maybe even in very different places with our faith, and in very different places with where we are in life, and and along that path, right? That it's like you can still be one and disagree with your neighbor politically. You can still be one, you know what I mean? And and maybe have different views on society and, and, and th- you know what I mean? And, and understandings of things, right? Right. Because I think that that's, I think that that's where, that's why I love the scripture because I think that it can be very easily misunderstood, but with a little bit of like a little bit of deeper digging into it, there's such a beauty in the idea that it's like you listen to the, 
uh, Mormon Tabernacle Choir, whatever you want me to call them now, but I'm still going to call them Mormon Tabernacle <laughs> Choir because that's what they are. Give me a break. <laughs> so when I listen to Motab, how many people do you have up there singing? Yeah, quite a few. Quite a few, right? But but the whole idea is is that they are joining their voices as one. Like they are one as they're up there singing, even though there's so many different, like literally very different things happening, right? As they're up there singing. Some people are a little bit flat. Some people are a little bit sharp. Some people are a little behind the beat. Some people are a little ahead of the beat. Uh, some people are singing totally different harmonies and parts and stuff like that. But what, what the, the lesson that you learn from that, though, is that they all are one in their message, in, in their purpose, in their goal, in their mission. You know what I mean? And not only that, but they're executing that, too, because all of those different voices lend together to make the message more powerful than it could be if it was just one person actually up there singing, right? And so this idea of of what does that mean for us to be one? I, I love that. I love that it still leaves and encourages us to be unique and to be different, and to and to accept that we're not all in the same place. And maybe have different understandings of things and different beliefs in things, but the, but what God is asking us to do is be one, maybe in purpose, or to be one, to be one in vision, to be one um, in in accepting everybody's uniqueness. You know what I mean? It's like uh -huh. to be one, to be one in the ultimate goal, which is what it just said right there, which is um, serve your neighbor. Uh, to you know what I mean to um, to help help people come to Jesus. You know what I mean. It's like those those are big things that those are the big picture things that if if we're all one in trying to reach that, it's like you almost need all of the amazing unique differences that we all have to make that happen. Oh, I'm so glad you used the example of music because. I mean, you can you can have several people singing the same note, and it is the same note, but it's the blend of voices, the unique voices that it's just different. I mean, me me singing that note, no, nobody's going to pay money to hear me sing a note <laughs> like that. But I mean, you go to Les Mis or you go to some of these these guys that can just sing, or and, and you have different parts, right? You, you you've got your your bass, your tenor, your alto, your soprano, or however it, it, it might not be the same thing, but yeah, and you might have different voices, but the way they blend into one message is very powerful. And an orchestra, the same thing, right? You don't have one instrument; you have so many different orchestra or instruments in the orchestra that are just blending in such a unique way. That well, it makes it more powerful, like like quite literally, quite literally, things that can't be perfectly in tune thank goodness you layer those with other people like the more and more people that you can add to that that are that are a little bit sharp and this person's a little bit flat and there's none of them are exactly perfect but the warmth and the depth is so pleasing to listen to that um you know and again it's just like it's funny because like if i could like if I if if I actually had like all of my music tools available to go like okay listen to this and it's like okay well that's perfectly in tune and that's painful to listen to <laughs> but what happens if I layer three or four of those you know oscillating waveforms and and you know slightly detune them from each other and you'd be like why why would you detune them why would you want something out of tune and then it's like okay now listen to them all together and it's this gorgeous warm rich sound and you're like oh that's weird it's the mixture of things that aren't perfect 
all trying to do the same thing that makes it so thick and warm and powerful and beautiful. And, and then to take that to an example, maybe in biology a little bit, this idea that biodiversity is what makes this world lo- work, this, this idea that every different organism has a role to play, the, the, the decomposers, the recyclers, if you didn't have the molds, if you didn't have the bacteria, the fungus that are breaking things down into building blocks so that other life can use it, then, yeah, it's frustrating when it's growing in your house, but what would you do if the world didn't have that to break down the decay, to break down the death? Or that video that they did about reintroducing the wolves in Yellowstone, and I know that's a little bit controversial with ranchers and and the problems that they've had with wolves, but it was fascinating. They said that just by reintroducing the wolves, they changed the course of the rivers. Mm. Because the the deer had overpopulated the area. They were eating all of the the grass, and it was eroding the banks, and the course of the river was changing. By reintroducing the wolves, and as it starts to eat the deer population, it would scare the deer, keep them out of the areas, and now you start to have trees that grow taller and more vegetation. And because you have more vegetation and more trees, more birds return to the area. And then you have more seeds and more fruit that's getting spread about, and it's just continuing to build. And you, you don't realize the difference that one species makes just by doing its role. Then you would think, well, wolves are going to come in there and they're going to destroy the life. But the fascinating thing they saw is how much it increased and benefited the life. And this this idea of balance that you have these different roles that play different positions, but the biodiversity is really what makes it work. God's not asking us to lose our personality. God's not asking us to 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 just fall in line and become a a, a drone here. But He's asking us, like like you said, and you highlighted it so well, this idea that we unite in purpose, we unite in in singing His song, if you will, sure. in our in our own particular way. Well, and also think about like the reason that we do, um, you know, fasting as 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 wards or fasting and, and prayers as you know, or the prayer role at the temple and things like that, right? Like, there, the idea is is that is that there really is something that can be amplified. And again, like again, not to harp on this music thing too much, but like you brought up, you have an orchestra, right? It's like it's just like literally physically adding more and more instruments. The volume it amplifies, it builds on each other. It, it it becomes it becomes loud, it becomes present, it becomes thick and powerful, right? Where sometimes just you know a Weasley little violin up there, you might not even be able to hear it in the back of the room, right? Mm-hmm. And and like I I do love I do love what you said about it's not necessarily about it's not necessarily about totally becoming such a different person that like you lose your personality and your individual talents by the way and and things that may may reach somebody that might not otherwise be reached by somebody else right right but the the idea is is that that's why we pray together that's why we that's why we lend our voices to amplify our prayers right to amplify our attempts to you know, plead with God for each other and, and for, you know, or for somebody else or whatever it is, that, that that there really is, there really is kind of a, there's just a natural, literal volume, right, that happens when you layer more and more voices that are one in purpose, right? 
that are that are singing together even if they're even if some of them are broken and even if some of them aren't perfect the idea that, that the more and more people that lend their voices to something to a cause to a purpose that it amplifies that and that there's power in that it's yeah and then i want to take this in in context of how they're saying this and maybe and maybe put it on a little bit different approach because they're saying, you know, go back to the city of Enoch. Not only were they one in heart, not only were they unified, but it also says, and there was no poor among them. Hmm. And, and this idea of wealth and unity seems to be linked. And it says, I mean, Christ, here in Doctrine and Covenants, he's saying, what manner of man has 12 sons? And you take one son and you clothe them nice and put them here. And then you take another son and put them in rags and set them here. And says, what 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 kind of father would do that? I, I surely wouldn't, right? And then he says, if you are not one, you are not mine. And, and he also prefaces it by saying, for I have heard your prayers and the poor have complained before me. And the rich have I made, and all flesh is mine, and I am no respecter of persons, and I have made the earth rich. So if he is putting this this idea of unification in context of wealth, and he says, I am not one that takes one son and dresses him wealthy and says, be here, and I take another son and put him in poverty and put him over here, how do we... How do we... What's the word I'm looking for? How do we take that in how do we understand that i mean is is that not what god has done by by distributing people to different areas of the world where you have wealthy nations and not so wealthy nations does does god he says i have made the rich have i made right but he also has the the poor complaining to him so how does how does this idea of oneness as we talk about causes is this a cause that we should should we be chasing i mean what what does this tell us how how does that work what are your thoughts on on unity and wealth. Well, it is interesting because again, like we have, we have other examples. I feel like throughout the New Testament, especially that give us some context of this. But we also have a lot of modern revelation that gives us context of this too. But it's interesting because as we talked about earlier, in the Beatitudes, like who's who is blessed, like who who you know what I mean? It's like who who is who is basically inheriting the kingdom of god the, the poor and the humble so okay so this this what i'm saying is very interesting right uh-huh. and and it's funny because again like i i personally i personally probably interpret this the new testament um the way that the way that the rich and the poor are supposed to work together you know maybe differently than other people do but i i think that i think for me it's fairly clear that jesus says that we are under an obligation to to care for our neighbor, right? Mm-hmm. Individually or as a church, right? This, this is where I may, may split, you know, with some people. And again, like, whatever, like, I, I might be right or wrong, but it's like, I don't know if Jesus necessarily says, like, hey, it's the government's responsibility to take all your money and give it to somebody else, right? And instead, because it's almost like that's easy, that's lazy, that's the lazy way to do it, where God's putting it harder and he tells the rich young man, hey, you on your own, go out and sell everything you have. And then you take that money and you go give it to the poor. You know what I mean? And that that's a very hard thing, at least at the time, for that young, rich person who, for all we understand, was probably had a good heart you know, and was at least asking, hey, what can I do to make this right? I just feel like Jesus was fairly clear about what we're supposed to do, and that is 
we're supposed to use whatever we can to to take care of those among us that need the help, right? But it is interesting, though, at the same time that it's that it is that like the ideal for those who are actually entering into the kingdom of heaven are the poor in spirit, right? Or like the the humble or whatever it is, right? I don't know. It's I, I think is like I just don't think it's as easy as you know rich people are bad and you know what I mean or whatever it is, right? 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 right. Certainly not. I don't. Yeah, I would. I. Yeah, I would say absolutely not, right? The the Lord says he has made the rich, right? And and not only that, but God tells us that the earth is rich and he made the rich he made the earth rich. And I don't know, if we were to paint in, in broad strokes here, as we talk about the condition of the earth before before this this idea there's there's this silence, but then the angels are going to be wreaking destruction. And and the, and the Lord tells us that that a lot of times the righteous suffer alongside with the wicked. So not to say that everyone was wicked who died in wars or everyone was wicked who died in the revolts or the problems or everything that we've had. Certainly not. Or that you're being punished for being poor and that you must have done everything right if you're rich financially right. or something, which is, would just be insane. But look at how the world has changed from that point, from after all of these revolutions, after all of these destructions, to this idea where where this king or this monarch would tell you, this is what you have to do, this is where your money's going, this is how much you get, this is how everything works. It, and it seems to me very similar to another plan that was proposed in the very beginning here. Let me tell you how this is going to go. Let right. me make sure that everybody is saved. Let me make sure that everyone is okay. Everyone is going to be good because I'm going to make everyone good. And I'm going to keep the glory. Because somebody, there always has to still be somebody at the very top of that. <laughs> right, or... Or let me allow you to make a choice, and then and then you can receive glory, and knowing that you did the right thing and no one made you do it. This idea, this is very empowering, and and I feel like the world has changed to empower the people to make those choices. And as I look at the nations that contribute the most, the most charitable nations in the world, uh, the United States tops the list for the last thirty years running. Of course, because you've got. Yes, you have a lot of wealth here, but you also have a lot of people that are very charitable or very kind that are giving because they are stable or they are happy. It's it's not to harsh on the the harp on the the righteous. I think, or the, excuse me, the wealthy. I think a lot of the wealthy, in many cases, are trying to help the poor. Maybe maybe not, and maybe it's a very individual thing that you that you judge on. I I know it's very easy for us to to want to share, to want to help for, for a lot of people, I imagine, listening to the show that I'm talking to. And maybe one of the harder things for us to learn is how to accept help or how to be the person in need. Nobody wants to be the person in need. We always want to be the one that's there giving help. We always want to be the one that, that that's in that position where we can help others. And my family, I mean, we've, we've struggled financially in the past. And, and I tell you, we've gone through some really hard times and and as as christmas time was approaching more than once we we heard a knock on a door just to find an envelope with a thousand dollars sitting there you know how are we going to take care of christmas with six kids and, and other people were looking out for us and i know these kind of stories it's happened to us it happened when i was a kid it, it's yeah it's it there are good people there's a lot of good people but the thing is i think that there's so much and again like I, i'm not i'm not i don't want to 
this this has nothing to do with like political views, but there is something that is so fulfilling, f- like spiritually, temporally, all things with God are spiritual, as we talked about already, though a couple uh-huh. episodes ago. That there's something that's just so much more deep when it's a person of their own free will giving of their means to somebody else. I mean, there just is right than to have it than to have you be compelled to have it <laughs> taken from you to give to somebody else. you know what i mean like 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 the plan like when you like did you ever read did you ever read like a clockwork orange i haven't okay so i i did and and again like uh, like i love the book but again like i also get it and i'm not talking about like seeing the movie i'm talking about the actual book right anthony right. burgess there's something so profound about the idea that it's like is a man a righteous person if they're forced to be good? Like, that's the moral question, right? Mm-hmm, like, if you question. are compelled, if you have no choice but to to do the, do the quote-unquote correct moral thing, does it make you a good person if, if you had to be compelled to do that, right? And, of course, the anti-hero of the book sows his wild oats and is a total knucklehead, but but... But then later on in the book, gives that up because he grows up and realizes that that's not what he wants to do, right? And so again, it's just like who is who is the more who is the more moral person, the person that is compelled to be good, or the person that maybe even chooses to not be good, but then learns from that and 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 either changes their ways or don't, right? Like it's it's just the moral question, right? And and this is why again, like I always come back to this idea when 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 Christ was talking to the rich young man, he told him very very clearly what he wanted him to do. You on your own, go sell what it is that you have, and then and then give that give it all away, and then come follow me. Which, by the way, is is, is obviously the most crucial part of that parable and then come follow me that's there's something there's something that that i'm okay with when he decided not to do that because that's that was a hard thing for him to do and we don't know and i know it's probably been talked about but we also don't know the end of that story either right we don't know we don't know because he was he was a young person and dude, it's even harder when you're a young person and you don't have that wisdom necessarily at the time. You know what I mean? It's just like it's just like I don't judge that person harshly at all in that story because I I understand. I you know what I mean? It's like I understand that character. And so there there's something again to just kind of bring this back full circle, right? That yeah, we also had people drop off money and toys and things like that, right? Not only did that bless our lives, but like I can't, well, I can because luckily we've been able to help do some things, you know what I mean, like through the years too. But it's like that blesses everybody involved. It does. Every single person that's involved in that is blessed, right? In ways you can't even see. Oh, but the thing, but in a lot of ways that you can. Uh, yes. You know what I mean? I think that that's kind of still too my point that I've taken unfortunately you know 10 minutes to kind of come around to is that it's like if we can do what what god's asking us to do and that is to not let there be any poor among us 
And again, we're not all in a financial position where we can make that happen, right? And sometimes that's not just obviously going and just giving money to somebody, right? Like there's, there's, it, it's, it's so much more nuanced and complicated than that, right? Absolutely. So, so, and again, like I have a problem when people try to simplify this in, in various ways that again, we don't need to get into on the podcast. <laughs> but the thing is, is that if we're, if we are listening to promptings, we're told, we're told, we're given, if we're, especially if we're praying for those opportunities to bless somebody's life, it might not have anything to do with money, right? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But all I guess I'm trying to say is this, like, I feel like it's, it's fairly specific and clear what we're being told to do. And that is we're being told to go and bless people's lives and not let there be any poor among us in more ways than just financially. How many times does the Lord promise us treasure that moth and and rust will not corrupt? Exactly right. And there is no poor. I mean, the the sense that poor meaning you need something and, and the idea that your needs are being met, you're happy. I think that's what everyone's searching for, right? And maybe you're searching through it for money or maybe you're searching through it through family or whatever the way you're doing for it. Ultimately, you're wealthy in happiness and contentment or or you're missing something that that's keeping you from being happy and this idea that that you're unified and happy, I think. Well, even, I mean, wasn't it in uh, Mosiah that King Benjamin was even like, hey, it's totally fine to be wealthy uh, uh, sp- uh, like as long as you use your means to to help other people and as, as long as you use your means righteously. Uh, yeah. Was it, search, wasn't it wasn't it King it Benjamin? Was, it was. And search first the kingdom of God and then you shall be wealthy. Yeah. And, and, and and if you will be wealthy if your heart is so that you can and and it gives us all sorts of steps. Yeah, uh, yes. But it but it's still the blessed lives of other people. And the thing is is like and again like I know we've talked about this again like I know we need to move on. But the thing is there's like this is very this for me at least this is all very profound, right? Uh-huh. Because the thing is is that I man, I remember the first time I just, I'm saying like, I just remember the first time I was able to pay for lunch for an entire group of friends without having to think about it. And and again, like it ended up being, I don't know, a hundred bucks. So it's not like it was crazy, but dude, living, you know what I mean? Years and years and years where that's a huge, huge, huge deal. It was so amazing to go, Hey, like I loved being able to do that. I love, because the thing is I had people doing that for me for so long that it was just like, hey, I love the idea that like, if nothing else, I can provide a meal. And again, like, even when I was serving a mission in Oakland, um, we we had a lot of Polynesian members of the church out there, and the most giving people in the entire world, whether or not they even had the means to do it, but it was, but but it was always followed up with, it always comes back, it always comes back, and I've always loved that idea, right? I've always loved that idea, and I'm just like, I re- like, I am not. A wealthy person financially whatsoever but there is something that is that i love at least being able to buy a meal for a friend at least pay for dinner when we go out or oh, when family that. goes out to dinner right and the thing is is like i would hope that because i'm trying to be wealthy like i'm not gonna lie about that i want <laughs> i love the freedom that finances give you but i also love the idea that it's like man if i if I love being able to just buy a meal for friends, man, wouldn't it be awesome to have just a grip of cash? <laughs> you know what I mean? To be like, 
hey, let me let me help build some houses for some people that that are homeless. You know what I mean? Like, hey, you know, or whatever. It's like I just I guess I'm just saying like I would hope that I would hope that if I ever am able to be blessed enough to be ridiculously wealthy, that that it that it, God would know that that hopefully my heart would be in the right place. Because I do I do genuinely love the idea of going like, cool man, if like if I have money that that I don't need for my own needs and stuff like that, I love the idea of like finding creative ways of using that to bless other people's lives, right? And then in that sort of way, then it's just like, cool, I need to make sure that I'm never resenting wealth, that I'm never resenting somebody else with wealth because you can look at all kinds of charitable things that those people are doing with their money too. Do you know what I mean? Then it's just like, okay, cool. Like, what am I going to say, you know, at that point, right? Thank you for building that school. You know, thank you for giving that scholarship to to a person in need. You know what I mean? It's like there's all kinds of things where I'm just like, oh, yeah, like, yeah, wh- why am I going to hate on that person for having wealth? This person is blessing the world with their wealth, you know? Well, it's something that we've said, that you've said to me in a conversation that we've had uh, kind of outside of this is, you know, you've got the law of tithing that, that that's that's kind of easy. It's just fix. It's set. This is what you do. This is it. But then when it comes to the other, right, are we generous with our fast offering? Are we generous with helping people? Do we donate? Do we, I mean, where, where how much do we do there? It, it almost is like the Lord is trusting us. He's not going to dictate. He's not going to mandate. But maybe the law of consecration is something that we're already living to an extent of. Interesting. Where do we draw that line? And are we giving as much as we can when we can? And I mean, ultimately, maybe, maybe I could wrap this with uh, two statements. One, when Christ says, "When when you when you helped the 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 naked, you clothed the naked, you fed the hungry, when you took care of the sick or visited those that were in prison, you did it to me. When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me." And then in the Book of Mormon, I know not all of us are in a position where we can give as much as we would like to. But when they say, "Even if you don't have enough, but in your heart you say, yes. if I did, I would,'" it still counts. Like God understands all things are present before His eyes, and there is a lot of generous kind people. Uh, my mom, just absolutely wonderful. And, and she says sometimes, you know, maybe I was never wealthy just because if I did, I'd give it all away and be right back to where I was. <laughs> I mean, she was always, she is, she's always giving everything that she has. Um, but one one statement here that I want to kind of finish this podcast up with is one that the earth, that the Lord tells us that the earth is rich. And, and the thing is, economy is driven by scarcity, and, and scarcity is kind of this critical thing, right? Because there's scarcity, there's trade or there's this or there's that, and, and it drives competition, and, and competition is what the, makes the world go around. And you have people always saying in science and modern day, you always have people saying there's not enough. We, we're running out of water. We're running out of resources. We're overpopulating. We've got problems here. There's not enough. How do we balance that with when the Lord says there's enough and to spare, the, the earth I made rich? And, and this was kind of an interesting thing for me as I picked up on this. Uh, back in 1968, Paul R. Um, Ehrlich, a Stanford biologist who studied butterflies, and noticing their population as it would overcrowd and problems with the population, would take his, his data and extrapolate it to, to apply to the human population. And he wrote a book called The Population Bomb. And, and the opening statement says, the battle to feed all of humanity is over. 
and he predicted that 65 million Americans would starve to death in the 1970s. And, and if America is starving to death in the 70s, what does that mean about India? He said India would be wiped out, mm-hmm. devastated, gone, right? He also stated that England would no longer exist in the year 2000. Um, he stated conclusively, sometime in the next 15 years, the end will come. And defining the end, he said, an utter breakdown of the capacity of the planet to support humanity. Uh, he said a lot of other crazy things. We won't get into it too much. Um, but obviously, as we look back, he was wrong. And, and there's some interesting things here that happened. And, and to me, if I could show you this in a graph, it is fascinating. The population exploded in growth exponentially, just as he said. We've more than doubled what the world population was at the time of the writing. So what does that mean to famine? What does that mean to the death and and, and overcrowding and what has happened to the people? As you look, death due to famine has decreased exponentially uh, to the point that back in 1968 when he wrote this book, one in four people were hungry in the world. That number is less than one in 10 today. All of a sudden, not, not only as the food shortages and famines almost disappeared. But our problem today isn't with starvation, but overeating. Mm. Yeah, totally. I can attest to that. (laughs) The average person today is wealthier, healthier, and better fed than 1968. And yet the population is twice as high today as it was then. Mm. What changed? What happened? And, and what he didn't account for was advances in food production and agriculture. And you see how fast this took off and revolutionized the world to now all of a sudden the earth can support enough and more. So we thought we were running out of room back in 1968, and now our population has doubled. And not only that, but there's no more starving. Well, there, there, I mean, obviously there are some people that starve in the world, but to the extent of what we saw in 1968 drastically reduced with twice the population. And so I just wanted to give a few instances where this has happened because the the population bomb that fizzled back in the 60s is not the first time this has happened. The Greeks ran out of tin 3,000 years ago, and because they did, it, it led to the advent of iron, which was a far superior metal, and that ended the Bronze Age and ushered in the Iron Age. Later... Um, When timber shortage happened, it led to the discovery of coal, which was far more efficient for burning. And we, the, the, the idea that even today, a lot of our power plants run off of coal, the advances in technology that have come because we ran out or because we thought we were doomed and we didn't have enough. And then we realized there was something more powerful or something there more that the God was right. The earth, he made rich to support our needs. And then, um, I mean, it goes on. The, the the shortage in well oil led to the first oil well that was discovered. So as we, we harp on natural... Whale, oil, oil well, whatever. <laughs> yeah. As, as we look at these, these fossil fuels, um, yes, we've probably reached a time where we're starting to, to, to run low or not run low, where we want to remove our dependency on those, but realize the dependency on those got us to where we're at today. And, and helped save well populations where we were, we were whaling those to death. And, and now we've, we've switched, we've changed. The thing is, as we get more advanced, the Lord feeds us line upon line. 
And as we get to the end of that line and we start to panic or we start to worry and we start to see like Peter, the waves that start coming around us, you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. It's good. It's healthy because hopefully that turns our focus to the Lord. And he has poured revelation down, not just upon the saints, but upon the world. And a lot of times the same science that is criticizing and saying, no, there's not, is the same science that is providing us with the solution for the future as as God provides for us and more. And um, just finishing real quick, according to wheatlife.org, a family of four can live off of uh, two years off of the wheat that's produced in in a single acre. So one acre of wheat is enough wheat to, to sustain a family of four for two years. An acre of wheat produces, on average in the United States, 37 bushels of wheat. One bushel weighs about 60 pounds, so that means one acre produces about 2,226 pounds of wheat a year. Sorry, a lot of numbers there. So 2,000 pounds, roughly, of wheat per year in an acre. Where I work, I'm a data scientist or a data analyst at a, at a place where we do indoor growing. So we've got this tower, this machine. It's about a 20 by 30 foot footprint. That's all the space it takes, and it's about three stories high. And in here, it takes wheat grains, puts a little bit of water on it, turns it around, goes through light and whatnot. But one of these machines in a 20 by 30 foot footprint is able to harvest 6,000 6, pounds of wheat a day. So in less than an acre, we can pop 10 of these machines up and produce 60,000 pounds of wheat a day. The, the world is changing. And, and I get it. I, I understand the need to focus on causes. As in the Lord says, be anxiously engaged. Don't wait for me to command you what to do. And he tells us, be wise stewards of the earth. We do need to be concerned. We do need to care. But when we do it, Let's not focus or let's not lose focus on the Savior. Let's not get so distracted by the waves that are crashing around us and the wind that's lifting up that we forget to focus on the Lord. And it might seem overly simplistic, but what I take out of this lesson is as we focus on the Savior, the Lord has promised as we become one with him, we become one with others. We become one that he will provide for us and there will be no poor among you and there's enough to spare and the Lord will take care of us. I love it, man. Okay. Thank you guys for tuning in. Next week, we're going to be talking about Doctrine and Covenants. Let's see. Sections, well, 41 on a little bit there. I can't remember right off the top of my head, but we'll, we'll dive there when we get there. Until next week, see ya. See ya.